take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, as we continue our study of the writer of Ecclesiastes as he addresses some of the most important things and elements of life as we know it here under the sun. Every culture at the time of the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes had a genre of literature called wisdom literature. Within the context of each culture's wisdom literature, they address the pragmatics of how the world works. But they also dealt with some of the big philosophical problems and questions of the day. And even in this wisdom literature dealt with the very small things of everyday life that demand a certain common sense in essence, in every culture, but particularly the Jewish culture and Scriptures, wisdom literature dealt with how one is to live well in whatever age or whatever culture or whatever era that they resided in. That's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is portraying to us. It's what is he presenting to us to wrestle through some of these things in life that matter most. How to live well today for the believer in light of eternity can be a challenge at times. There are so many voices out there telling us one thing or another, leading us to one conclusion or yet another conclusion, and challenging us, deeply challenging us in in critical kinds of, of ways. The writer of Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, if you would, this convener of the assembly, the philosopher, the teacher, the preacher, and the pundit, is not offering some simplistic, quiet treatise on life. He is pouring out in all of the passion he can muster to a world that has embraced a far different worldview why everything matters. So often in the Christian life today, we've been convinced to be quiet and and stealthy in our presentation of the truth, and sometimes our passion can be misunderstood as, as anger or some other kind of thing. But if you truly believe something, you must handle it passionately. And I passionately believe the truth, and I will speak that truth passionately, and I will leave it up to people to interpret my heart, but most of you know better. You've seen me outside of this pulpit in a quiet place where you can reflect upon my heart, but I'm not going to quiet in a world that is spinning out of control. And I will plead with you and beg with you and passionately preach the Scripture so that we can find some hope, some, some sense, some promise in a world that provides or offers no hope and promise. Scriptures remind us so pointedly about our culture today and many of the things in the news. As James writes, James writes, come now, you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that as it is. You boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. You continue on your life, you continue on your journey with no understanding or no reflection or no cognitive awareness that that tomorrow is tomorrow and not one of us is guaranteed anything. And that, in essence, is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to plead for. It's what he's trying to prove. It's a philosophy that he's espousing. And in the end of the day, he calls us to live a life of obedience. James does as well. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. And we as God's people know that right thing. We know that our lives are in His hands. We know that He knows the end from the beginning, and it is appointed unto man once to die. There is a divine appointment for every single one of us. We don't know if it's in the next minute or the next year or the next decade, but we know that our God knows, and that's what brings a quietness to heart. Some think Ecclesiastes is a pleading to the unsaved world, and indeed it is that, the unbelieving world. But I sense that Ecclesiastes is so much more important and appropriate in our age for the church, because we're living in this wayward generation, and sometimes their rotten thinking and philosophy and lifestyle rubs off on us. So what is the coalesce, the preacher? the convener of the assembly, the teacher, say about all of that. He draws us in in chapter 1 by talking about the vanity of vanities and the toil at which man toils under the sun. And he begins to explain and espouse a worldview and a lifestyle that will sustain you in the good times and in the bad times mostly today in light of all of the tomorrows and eternity as we know it. The world is captured with a philosophy that he describes in the first 11 verses, where the life and the world goes round and round and round and round, and nothing ever changes, and there's nothing new under the sun, and what has been done will be done, and there's nothing new, nothing that can be said, see, this is new and there will be no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What a depressing text. You live and you die, and there's nothing new under the sun, and that's just the way it is. But that's not the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. He is setting out a tone for the rest the writings, his speech, if you would, as his thought process in life. And I believe some very positive things come from this text. But if you get stuck in those first 11 verses and live your life under the sun with no God, with no transcendent meaning, with no future, with no hope, it is a despondent life indeed. And we see it reflected in so many ways in our culture today. For those who were raised some time ago and went to real high school, no offense to the present high schools, you read some of the great literature of the past. And some of you may have been even exposed to Ernest Hemingway, 
and some of the classics that he wrote that are still classics today, such as The Old Man in the Sea, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Sun Also Rises. Perhaps you remember him as a historical figure who lived an amazing, adventure-filled life. He did what he wanted to do. He traveled around the world. He lived how he wanted to live. He had many wives. And he embraced an existential nihilism and wrote often in most of his short stories about the reality that life is meaningless and has no purpose. Life is nothing. There are no transcendent belief systems nor values. And in order to have an authentic life, you have to make your own way, forgetting all the rest of that. And it resulted in Ernest Hemingway's life, with a life that is characterized by disillusionment and despair and depression. In 1962, Ernest Hemingway, for all of his glorious life and accolades, got out of his bed in the middle of the night and at two o'clock in the morning took his life. And he killed himself. But what else could he have done? R.C. Sproul, in commenting on existential nihilism or nothingness, says that the logical conclusion to a life without God and existential nothingness, a, a life without any kind of meaning, the only logical conclusion is life doesn't matter and often leads to suicide. Because the only thing that you can control in an existential nihilistic kind of philosophy is not death, we will all die, but you can choose when and where and how you die. And he was probably the most honest of the existential nihilists in the culture. Because if, in fact, you see life that way, there are no other options. Just a few short years after Hemingway's life, John Lennon of the Beatles, some of you know those Beatles, you saw those Beatles, you listened to those Beatles, some of you are of the generation that that's something that crawls on the floor, but that's a whole nother talk. I wrote a song that captures the essence of life under the sun, under existential nihilism, and it's called Nowhere Man. Here's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? There are so many people in our world that live that kind of existence. The Koalef begins by saying, that is how some people live, but that's not good enough for me. So as he moves through chapter one, he begins to introduce a concept of living above the sun and seeing things beyond the normal reality. And the meat of the text reminds us of some things that we will remind ourselves together 
as we study chapter 1. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we pray as we embark on, again, a study of a very difficult text to understand and to wrestle through, a difficult perspective, a number of voices used by the coaleth, the, the, the convener of the assembly or the preacher, the pundit, the teacher. Give us clarity of our understanding. Help us to understand what is taking place and help us to stick with this until we get to the end for a snapshot in Ecclesiastes is a black and white picture that doesn't offer a whole lot of hope. But when we dig and search the Scripture, your Holy Spirit uses it for your glory and shows us keys to living, concepts that sustain us in a better way. May we find and mind that gold in the text, the book of Ecclesiastes. May it change our perspective and our thinking, and may that spill over from us to those around us, to your glory alone. Bless us as we study again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, as we've told you in the past, is assuming a number of different perspectives and and positions as he lays out his argument for life under the sun as we know it. We will see him shift back and forth and forth and back from various perspectives, and we see some of that shift taking place even here in chapter 1. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, the Koheleth, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. All is a breath of, of air, a gust of, of winds. Everything is, is short and temporal in nature. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also was but a striving or chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What is he trying to communicate? And what genre or perspective is he speaking? How is he addressing this emptiness of the first 11 verses? Well, we reflected last week that he plays the role throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as the cynic and the hedonist, but ultimately the apologist trying to make sense out of this world. And as I look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter, I believe that as the Koheleth reflects upon the nothingness of of earthly, worldly perspectives and civilizations, he says to himself, that's not enough for me. That's not a good enough answer. I refuse to live that way. I will not accept that life has no meaning at all. So he purposes 
based upon that to answer and to address the things that we read in the following verses in its context. As we look at the voice of the cynic, it is a voice who lives in the despair of a world without God. He describes for us a world without God and the nothingness that permeates that world. It was the world of Ernest Hemingway who once said, every man's life ends the same way. And it's only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguish one man from another. There's nothing more to life than today. There's nothing more to life than from the time I was born until the time I die, and it is up to me to make sense out of this life. In some times of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer wears that hat in a rhetorical kind of sense to help us to understand that life under the sun without God is empty. From time to time, he will take that hedonistic approach Well, because life is so difficult, I am going to seize the moment and at least enjoy the pleasures of life, whatever I desire. Hemingway again said, what is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad afterward. Are you kidding me? In essence, he's saying, well, life is endless. Life is it's meaningless. Life is empty. So, so what I'm going to do is just live my life and seize all of the gusto I can, and I will do what makes me happy. Because in the end of the day, if it makes me happy, it's moral. And if it doesn't make me happy, it's immoral. What a bankrupt system that is. We tried to salvage that in Christianity today, which I think It's a grave mistake. Christian hedonism says life is meaningless in itself, but God miraculously blesses us with the ability to enjoy it anyway. I refuse to accept that life is meaningless in itself. I refuse to accept that. How can we hold to the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, intrinsic worth, value, and dignity under the image of God, and then say life has no meaning and it's meaningless? What a false statement. What a ridiculous statement to try and pacify the world and redeem a hedonistic kind of life. Does God give us the ability to enjoy life? Absolutely, but that's not the goal of life. And sometimes Christian hedonism convinces us that that's the goal of life. God wants me to be happy. No. And I would remind you of question one of the Minster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Not to enjoy life forever, to enjoy Him forever. We have to be really careful that we're not out there looking for the latest experience and what makes us feel good because that's what God wants. No, God wants us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. There must be a place for God. And sometimes in the hedonist, there is no place for God. In fact, all of the time. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the pleasures of life, but be careful to not fall prey to this hedonistic notion that permeates everything under the sun. Life is temporary, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And then what? The hedonist would say, well, then what? What? 
I lived my life my way, and I was happy. There's no above the sun. There's no transcendence. There's no real meaning and purpose. And I see the Koheleth ultimately as an apologist who teaches us that cynicism and hedonism are not the answer. And he embarks, beginning in verse 12, by saying, there's got to be a different answer, and I'm going to get to the bottom of all of this. There must be something more. The only way I survive life is believing that there must be something more. (laughs) Because if this is as good as it gets, you've heard me say it often, I'm rather disappointed. How about you? There must be something more. So as he introduces to us in in verse 3, the ultimate question, what does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He begins to respond to that by writing in verse 12, I, the preacher, the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the teacher, the philosopher, the professor, the pundit, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. As we begin to reflect on who is indeed the speaker, it seems that this text in particular seems to zero in on the person most qualified to fit the description. In the sense that he's speaking about Solomon himself, the preacher, king over Israel in Jerusalem. He says in the context of all of this that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, and it's an unhappy business indeed. He talks about seeing life under the heaven and the emptiness of that life. But look at verse 16. Again, his identity, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. It reminds me of what we read about what I perceive to be the author in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon asked of God, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 8, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern your great people. And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. But I also give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. The writer says, I had more wisdom than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And as you link those texts, it seems to be the author Solomon himself, the Koheleth, the successor to the throne of David, ruling over Jerusalem, not a divided kingdom, but a united kingdom, saying to the world at large, there is something more. There must be something more. I reject the notion of nothingness, and I will put all of my abilities into this 
understanding of trying to figure this out, to, to get to this place where I can offer some wisdom as you live this world under the sun. So again, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart, the very essence of my life, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. The writer said, I made a holistic commitment of the intellect, of the emotion, and of the will to reject what the world has to say about life under the sun and discover to unearth, to uncover, if you would, what life really is all about. In a deliberate, thorough, deep, and wide-ranging exploration of life, with unlimited time and resources, the Koheleth makes his way through life. It reminds me when he says, I applied the very essence of my heart, everything in my being. It reminds me what Jeremiah had promised to the exiles in Babylon, with the promise that God would bring them out and deliver them from their enemies. And Jeremiah reminds them, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I happen to think that that's what Solomon is saying. I am going to seek with all of my heart to make sense out of life and to figure this out. I will not settle for the cynicism of life. Interestingly enough, in light of the blessings that God gave in addition to the wisdom, Solomon, as a sinful human being, had trouble negotiating all of that. Pretty soon, all of the blessings of life became so big, it began to drive him. And he's going to write about those riches, and he's going to write about inheritance, and he's going to wrestle through all of that. And seemingly, he, he, he lost his perspective. And maybe, just maybe, the book of Ecclesiastes is to give us a picture into his mind as he wrestles through all of these issues, and then he lays out his case before the people that he gathered together. For who else could speak to the real essence of life than the man who had everything? That, that's what he's saying. So I put my whole heart and I deliberately did this, but he says it's an unhappy business to be given to the children of man to be busy with. We'll speak in a moment why it was an unhappy business, but we're not going to take anything away from his pursuit. He refused to go along with the majority. He refused to say, okay, I'll settle. Life is just life. You live, and then you die, and nobody cares. There's got to be something more. In his heart, he knew that. In his mind, he knew that. In his experience, he came to realize that, and it plays out for us. So, he addresses this assembly. I find it really interesting that in Ecclesiastes, this oration, as he gathers all of the people together, it is not a give and take. I hear so much about church needs to be a narrative, a give and take. There's no such thing as that. Here's what church needs to be. Thus saith the Lord. He's not taking questions. He's not interested in debate. He's not interested in what you have to say. We know how badly that went in one of the other wisdom books entitled Job. Remember how well that went for Job? He's not looking for someone in the audience to say, oh, we're not sure that's true. What about? No. 
He said, my credentials are better than the rest of yours, and I've been blessed with this wisdom, so you just listen, and I'm going to tell you how this all plays out. In our churches, we need to open up the book and tell you how all of this plays out. There's no room for moralizing or opinions. We must preach the Word in season and out of season, because I'm tired of listening to all of the talking, and the church doesn't do silence very well. Job's friends could do it for a week, and then they couldn't help themselves anymore. They had it all figured out, but they weren't facing what he was facing. They had it all figured out. Hey, a little bit of advice to you. Shut up. Let everyone be slow to speak and quick to listen. The address of Ecclesiastes comes after who knows what length of time processing and perceiving and trying to figure out and not to speak before he was ready to speak. And oftentimes in crisis and oftentimes in life, we don't even hear the voice of a person who's facing the emptiness of life. The only thing we hear is our voice drowning out their pain and their fears. Be quiet. Be quiet. It's a discipline that is absent. So there's no play here. There's no narrative. It's not a give and take. He's saying, here's what I did. Here's what I'm doing. It is a grievous task, but I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. He speaks of the brevity of life, the breath of life. He speaks of the emptiness and trying to figure all of this out. But in its context, he's not talking like the cynic any longer. He is talking as an apologist, at least in my understanding of what he is saying in the text. For he says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. What God does, how He does it, how life proceeds, I can't make the crooked straight. I can't come up with an answer as to why. I can't refute or refuse to believe what He's doing. Who am I to stand in the presence of God and say, that's crooked, it should be straight? He talks about what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying, how can I do the math when I don't understand the equation? Isn't that true, most of us? We don't even take the time any longer to look at the equation. We just come up with the answer. We just take a wild guess somehow at it. I don't even know all that factors into life. I don't even know all that factors into decision-making. I don't even know all that factors into God's design and purpose for this world. So that is why this is so empty in its pursuit. Reminds me again of the prophet Isaiah, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor. Did he ask you? Solomon says, that's saying, he didn't ask me. I don't have all the tools to come up with the right answers I don't even know everything that I'm counting. Verse 16, I said in my heart then, I committed my life. I've acquired great wisdom. 
passing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart had great experience, wisdom, and knowledge. And you see how he's juxtaposing himself against someone like Ernest Hemingway, who had all of the benefits of life, but turned in the opposite direction. He said, I've had all of the benefits of life. We'll read about it in chapter 2. I had great wisdom, great knowledge, great experience in the wisdom that God gave me in my rulership over Jerusalem. So I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. In essence, he said, I wanted to be able to, to separate them all because there is wisdom and there is madness and there is folly. And they get confused a, a lot of times in this life under the sun. And I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. I don't have all the answers. I had everything that I needed. I had all the equipment. I had all the gifts. I had all of the blessings. I had all the benefits, but I still could not figure all of this out. And I perceived that it was striving after the wind. I was pursuing something that God never intended me to pursue. There were things that He knew that I would never be privy to, but I must respond to. I really believe that that's what He's saying in the text here. He's not saying that there was emptiness in applying the wisdom that God gave him. He's not saying there's emptiness in knowing the difference between madness and folly. He's not saying there's emptiness in learning. He's just saying no matter how hard you try, you will never understand everything under the sun. There will be mysteries, and there will be doubts, and there will be questions. And I believe eventually he will say, but it doesn't have to be meaningless. Because there is a meaning and a purpose for your life. And over and over and over as he wears these different hats from the cynic, skeptic, to to the hedonist, to the apologist, he lays out his arguments. In verse 18 he says, for much wisdom is much vexation. It's hard work. It's tiring work. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What do you mean? The more I know, the less I know. (laughs) Some people love to live in their ignorance. Ignorance is bliss, right? They can give you the right thing for everything under the heaven, but they have no experience. They've never been there. They don't know what they're talking about, but they have all the right answers. He's saying, you know what? The more you know, the less you know. The more you try and make sense, the greater your intellectual capacity the more you're reminded that there's no figuring this out, and there are no easy answers, and it is, it is what it is. I believe throughout the text, in addressing this summation first chapter, the key to understanding is found in various places in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 7, if you would, verse 13. Again, he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. When life is good and God is blessing and you, and you know that all is well and the peace of God resides in your heart, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, be joyful. No, he doesn't say that. He says, in the day of adversity, 
remember or consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The key to understanding is, listen, you're created in the image of the Most High God. He has created you for His glory. He has granted to you life. And as He's granted you life, He has granted you the ability to be joyful in the prosperous times of life. But in those days of adversity, He has also given you the ability to grasp that God has done that too. And you don't have to know the answer, and you will never know the answer, for none of us can know what will come after Him. That is James all over again, isn't it? But it's still your life, and He's still God, and there is a time and a season and a purpose to everything under the heavens. Do you believe that? This is the conclusion of the apologist. Stop trying to figure it out. There are no easy answers. You know one of the biggest problems with contemporary Christianity and much of what you read in Christianity today? It's simple answers for complex questions. It's platitudes. Oh, you're going through a difficult time. Just praise God. Well, yeah, that's exactly what you feel, right, when you're going through those times. I'm just going to praise God. Isn't that great? No. Psalmist says, consider that He's still on the throne, and for whatever reason, in this time and in this season, under the heaven, this is what He has for you. Be quiet. Keep still. Be still, and know that He is God. There's great wisdom in that. So, they couldn't figure it out except for this. There is a God, and He knows the time of prosperity, and He knows the time of adversity, and He's the author of both of those in my life, and I just need to accept that He knows best, and there are no answers. Some of you have plagued yourself all of your life looking for answers that cannot be found under the sun. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Look at chapter 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under heaven. We may never know why for the times and the seasons. However much man may toil in seeking, he cannot, he will not find it out. And even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Calling us back to the mysteries of life and the glories of a transcendent God. So he draws a conclusion for us in chapter 12. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. The collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. God has told you. Oh man, what He requires of you. 
and you've decided that you don't like what He requires of you, and you're trying to figure this out all by yourself, so He's taking the lessons of the life, the good times and the bad times, and like a, like a little prod, He's poking you to remind you that under the sun there are no clear answers, but there is a God, and there is one shepherd who will make all things new and sustain you in the midst of life. My son, he says, beware of anything beyond that. Great wisdom, isn't it? (laughs) Quit chasing the wind. You have what what you need. For of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So what's the point? The end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're in a time of prosperity or a time of adversity, there's always hope, there's always promise, and there's always perspective, but it's never under the sun. I've been in degree programs for the last 11 years of my life, getting a degree after another degree, and it just brings up more questions, and I don't have any answers. And it doesn't mean that education is wrong. It simply means you can't know, but there is one who does. So fear God and keep His commandments for this as the whole duty of life. Be encouraged today that as He applied His heart to know wisdom and to know folly, as He pursued life under the sun, trying to make sense out of all of that, He says in chapter 3, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. God has done it. So the people fear before Him. Some of you have become bigger than God in your own hearts and in your own minds. You've taken it into your own hands, you've drawn your own conclusions, you've made your own determinations. You have indeed pursued things beyond what the shepherd has given you, and you've come up with a handful of nothing. There's great wisdom in knowing that whatever God does endures forever. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. I can't explain it. I don't always understand it, but I know that God is in control, so I will fear God. This isn't a theophobia, a fear of God. Oh, I'm dreadfully afraid of God. This is a, a filet, a family kind of fear, a reverent, reverence, a, a, an awe that in my simple, seemingly futile life, this little blip on the world stage of history, this little speck 
in this linear history from Genesis to the book of Revelation, God is interested in me. He knows my name. He knows my story. He blesses me in times of prosperity. He grows me in times of adversity. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. I will simply rest in silence and know that He is God. And I will learn to fear. I will learn to reverence. I will learn to respect and in a proper perspective, I will enjoy the life that God has given me, and I refuse to believe it's meaningless. That's the apologist. That is the professor. That is the pundit. That is the Koheleth. That is the key to understanding your life. That is short, but meaningful, purposeful in times and seasons, ordained by the God of all creation for His glory. And He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness, so you have what it takes to see this through. It's not a cynical book at all. He robs us of our arguments and points us to our hope. Fear God and keep His commandments. May that be the case, Father, in our lives. It is elusive. It is like chasing after the wind. We are a distracted bunch indeed, trying to figure out the end from the beginning, knowing where neither of them starts, rushing and running around trying to make sense of a life that was granted to us by the God of all creation, by excluding that same God of all creation. We played the role of the cynic. We played the role of the hedonist. Teach us to play the role of the apologist speaking truth into a world of nothingness for your glory, that people might fear before you. May begin in the house of God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.